Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto the ages of ages. Amen. This is a hymn that was composed by the Emperor Justinian in the days when political leaders were also men of God. O only begotten Son and Word of God, immortal as you are, you condescended for our salvation to be incarnate, the most holy Theotokos and ever Virgin Mary, and without undergoing change you became man. You were crucified, O Christ God, and you crushed death by your death. You who are one of the Holy Trinity, equal in glory with the Father and the Holy Spirit, save us. Amen. Please welcome back Dr. Ben Reinhardt. Thank you very much. It is wonderful to be here again tonight. It's great to see some faces from last time. Some faces I don't recognize out there, so uh, welcome. And we'll begin tonight just by recapping a couple of things from last night. So we're all on the same page, yeah? Last time, we suggested that the quest for the Holy Grail is an attempt to use the conventions of the old knightly romances to move the soul towards God. That was the big claim from last time. I'm going to be continuing that claim again tonight. Uh, we saw how Galahad is a figure of Christ, right? His adventure with the haunted graveyard where he chases away the demon, we argued... The hermit argued that that shows Christ's incarnation and Christ's passion. The second adventure with the Castle of the Maidens showed... Sorry about that. Uh, is it, sorry, are you guys getting feedback? No. No? Wonderful. I'm just hearing it up here. It's in my head. All right. So... The Castle of the Maidens showed the harrowing of hell, the resurrection, the ascension, and Pentecost. And the big claim from the end of the talk last time was that with Galahad now having given us the Paschal mystery, incarnation, death, resurrection, ascension, and Pentecost, we're now in the age of the church, right? We are in the time after Pentecost when ordinary Christians have to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. And that's the meaning of the quote on the top of your handout. If you've got the new handout, the quote from Etienne Gilson, the adventures of the Holy Grail, Gilson says, are the adventures of grace neglected, lost, found, preserved, and increased. Now, we're going to be looking at two sets of two nights each tonight. Two who begin outside the state of grace with Gawain and Lancelot. Two who begin in the state of grace Percival and Bors. And as we go from the one to the other, what we're going to see is the soul's ascent towards God. 
And the ascent towards God is going to follow a scheme laid out by St. Bernard of Clairvaux in his 20th sermon on the Song of Songs. In this sermon, he lays out four kinds of love. We've got sensual love, carnal love, rational love, and at the top, spiritual love. Now, we need to draw a big dividing line there between sensual and carnal. Why? Because the top three, spiritual, rational, and carnal love, are all directed towards God. Sensual love is just directed down towards the things that you can see. I need to spend a little time on this because this is critically, critically important. So, sensual love is directed towards simply things of the world. Good or bad, things of the world. Each one of the higher loves comes from the words of Christ when he says, you need to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. So carnal love is the love of the heart, soul, and strength. And as St. Bernard lays out this scheme, he defines what each of these loves are. I'll take two minutes to tell you what the loves are, and then we can jump ahead, all right? So, carnal love. This is the one that probably requires the most explanation, because you hear the word carnal today, it's like, ooh, that, that does not sound particularly spiritual. But carnal love, for St. Bernard, it's more like affection, all right? It's proper object is the incarnate Christ. Get that carnal love? The incarnate Christ. A person who looks at a crucifix and weeps for the wounds of Christ. You meditate on the passion and think what he went through and you feel awful for what he went through. Or at Christmas time, you look at a crash and see the Blessed Virgin cradling the child Jesus and it stirs your affections. That's what St. Bernard means by carnal love. The adjective that he attaches to it is tender. Carnal love is defined by tenderness. Rational love, though, is a step higher. This isn't so much attached to Christ incarnate as it is to the deity of Christ and the attributes of God in his divinity. Things like his wisdom, his justice, his simplicity, right? So you're imitating not just the incarnate Christ, but Christ as the Logos, rational. The adjective here is wise, the difference between uh, spiritual love and rational love isn't a difference in the object, but it's a difference in the, in the quantity. Spiritual love is just rational love taken to the extreme, where your rational love is so strong that you're willing to undergo death. I would write strong, because that's the ad adjective St. Bernard attaches to spiritual love, but I can't reach up there. So, carnal, rational, spiritual, with sensual at the bottom. And what we're going to see here tonight, we're going to start down here with Sir Gawain, and we're going to climb this ladder, and we're going to see how that ladder's climbed all the way up to the spiritual love that men like Boers and Galahad have. All good? All right, fantastic. Uh, one other thing that we have to tackle before we jump into uh, the main plot, we have to talk about what the plot itself is. There's one really important word to know, and that's interlace. Because it's going to explain why I'm going to do a couple of weird things. 
Our author didn't give us a simple plot. A simple plot would look like this. On Monday, everybody did this. On Tuesday, everyone did this. On Wednesday, everyone did this, right? He didn't give us even a juxtaposed plot, which would be a little bit more complicated. But on Monday, I did this. On two, then on Monday, you did this. You, know, you tell my story, then your story. You tell Lancelot's story, then Gawain's story. No, no, no. He gives us this really confusing plot where we start off with Galahad. We follow Galahad for a little while for Monday. Then on Tuesday, we're with Lancelot. On Wednesday, we're with Percival. But then midway through Wednesday, Galahad comes riding through again. It's like trying to follow a braid, right? On your handouts, I gave you that nice little pretty picture. We take the word interlace from visual arts. And following one night's adventures is kind of like following one of those little crazy twisty lines in that S. All right? So because of this, we're going to be skipping around a lot in the plot. I apologize. It's the only way that you can get a coherent picture of the individual nights. So apologies, but I'm not really sorry. So let's go ahead. All right? <laughs> we're going to begin with Sir Gawain. Sir Gawain is our prototypical sensual man. Right? We left off Galahad, we now begin with Sir Gawain, and he's known in King Arthur's court. If you know the legends, he's the second best knight after Lancelot. Right? He's the popular guy, the gregarious guy. All the men want to be like Sir Gawain. All the women, they love Sir Gawain. He is the epitome of the courtly gentleman. Okay? But now our courtly gentleman is in a funk because he's riding around and nothing happens. He's looking for adventures and all he gets is a long road stretching out in front of him in the woods. He rides along. He meets two other knights of the round table. His cousin, Sir Owain, and his brother, Sir Geharit. All right? And they ride along and finally an adventure happens. They meet seven knights. Seven evil brothers, as a matter of fact. These are the same seven brothers who we just saw last time with Sir Galahad. And that's how the interlaced plot works. Sir Galahad knocks one domino, and then we see the dominoes fall throughout the rest of the plot. So, we've got these seven evil knights. They see Sir Gawain and his friends, and they know that they are of the same company as Sir, Sir Galahad. They're knights from Camelot. So, having some grudge against knights from Camelot because of what Galahad did, they all attack Sir Gawain and his friends. Of course, they were recently beaten soundly by Sir Galahad, so they don't have a whole lot of energy. Gawain and his companions easily overcome the seven knights, and not just overcome them, they kill them. They kill each of those seven evil brothers. And then they ride along. They come to the same abbey where Galahad had stopped. And now we meet the white monks. So as you all know, it's time to learn what all this meant. So, Gawain gets off his horse, and the abbot comes out, and the abbot chews him out. He says, you should have never killed those seven evil knights. And then all of a sudden, we have to stay, take, a, take a step back, right? Because this is a little bit weird. The seven evil knights, yeah, they represented the seven deadly sins, right? If Galahad beating the seven deadly sins is a good thing, why isn't Gawain killing the seven deadly sins a good thing, right? Beating good, killing better, right? All right, this illustrates a really important principle. And you get it in a quote from the, from the Abbot. I didn't give it to you, so I'll have to read it out. He tells him, Had you not been so hardened a sinner, the seven brothers would never have perished by your hand, but would even now, even now, they would be doing penance. And this makes the principle clear. The seven evil brothers represent the seven deadly sins. 
They are not, in fact, the seven deadly sins. They're real men with real souls who can really repent. And now they're really in hell because Gawain killed them. All right? And this gives us a f- the first big principle for knights on this quest. Even though everything has a higher significance, even though everything is going to point to some spiritual reality, it's not your business to worry about that spiritual reality, what it might mean. Your business is to first and foremost take care of your soul and take care of morality as has been revealed through, say, sacred scripture, the ministry of the church, the rule of faith. All right? That's the first rule. Um, Although, at the same time, we still might feel like Gawain's getting a raw deal here, right? Because he didn't... Well, look, it's a battle, right? There are swords and spears flying everywhere. How come he does wrong by killing these guys who, after all, attacked him? Sometimes Galahad swings a sword at somebody, but he never kills anybody. So why is it a bad thing? Why does Gawain get the raw deal? This is the second big principle. Remember how Galahad acts, right? He acts as an agent of providence. He's in a state of grace. Every action he does, he proceeds with prayer. He asks that God will conform him to his will. Sir Gawain is the complete opposite. He starts outside of the state of grace, and only once in the entire story does he stop to ask God what he should do. All right? So, the principle is this. If you're outside of the state of grace, if you're making no effort to conform yourself to divine providence, you can't expect that providence will work out <laughs> particularly in your favor. If you're doing everything in your capacity to be conformed to God's plan, well then, Romans 8.28, right? All things work together for good for those who are who love God and are called according to his purpose. That's the general idea. So, once our monk gets done telling Gawain what a mess up he's been, he calls him to repentance. And this is the first thing on your handout. He repeats the same old line. This is not a physical quest. We're not going after physical things. Um, Don't imagine that the adventures now afoot consist in the murder of men or the slaying of knights. They're of a spiritual order, higher in every way, and of much more worth. So come to confession. Get yourself straightened out. But Gawain doesn't come to confession, right? Grace is offered, and Gawain turns away. Why? Because the harshness of penance would be something more than what he could bear. So he says... Now, the story leaves Sir Gawain for a while. We're going to stick with him and sort of track his whole story from beginning to end. When we next meet up with him, he's in a worse mood because still nothing is happening with him, right? He still can't find any adventures. He's riding with another friend, Sir Hector, when a knight comes crashing out of the woods, challenges them to a joust. Sir Gawain rides forward, spears him through the chest, and he falls down, this strange knight, mortally wounded. The strange knight knows he's dying, so he begs Gawain and Hector to take him to a chapel so that he can receive the last rites, he can confess his sins, and receive the viaticum. All right? That's his last request. Gawain and Hector do this. Uh, The strange knight confesses, receives his savior. Then, since he's all squared away, they pull Gawain's spear out of his chest. He's bleeding out. They take his helmet off, and only then do we realize who we've killed. It's Sir Owain, Gawain's cousin, who had been his companion in the last adventure. Now, this shakes Gawain up a little bit. He's just killed his cousin. He's had some strange visions. So he goes, he and Hector go to the local priest for counsel. They talk for a while. Then Hector gets his questions answered, so Hector goes away. Sir Gawain, being a good companion, doing the buddy system, decides to go off with him. And the priest calls him back. 
And these set up the most tragic lines in the entirety of the quest for the Holy Grail. This is number two on your handout. The priest says, Godwin, you've given Satan all your good years, all the flower of your youth. At least leave Christ your last years, the pith and the bark, since Satan has had the rest. And Godwin responds, had I the leisure to talk to you, I would do so gladly. But you see my companion making off down the hill, and I must needs go too. But believe me, I shall return as soon as opportunity allows, for I am most anxious to speak with you in private. I say most tragic. Why? Because according to Aristotle's definition of a tragedy, this is what you need for a tragedy. You need to have someone who's better than the average person, who's prosperous and happy who comes to ruin, not through some egregious sin, but through a small flaw in character. And when we see this fall, it inspires in us pity, because it's a good guy who fell, right? And fear, because we might have a similar fall, flaw that leads to our tragic fall. And here we see, clear as day, Sir Gawain's tragic fall. The problem is, he's got two things in tension. He's got Camelot, and he's got Heaven. Right? He's got his reputation at Camelot. He's got the creature comforts. He's got his friends, the companionship. All these things are nice things. On the other hand, though, he's got the call to conversion and the call to grace. He tries to balance them. Right? I'll talk to you later, but I've got to go keep up with my friend now. He tries to balance them, but anyone who reads these lines, you can probably guess, Gawain's not coming back. Right? Godwin refuses this offer of grace, and it's the last time we're going to see grace offered to him in the entire quest. And with this, actually, we don't follow Sir Godwin as a primary plot character anymore. Because of the interlaced plot, he's going to intersect other plots a couple different times in the story. And every time we see him, he's going to be engaged in mindless manslaughter and destruction, mindless violence, just as that first hermit, back on page one, warned him against, right? Don't imagine that the adventure is now consistent in the murder of men, and that's what Gawain falls to. Now we need to stop here, because this doesn't seem quite fair. Gawain is the nice guy, he's the popular guy, he's the guy that everyone likes. Why does he become a murderer? That seems a little inconsistent with his character, right? Is this just like character assassination? I'm going to suggest that it's not. I think it's actually a very profound spiritual insight. Here's the point, all right? When the grace of conversion is offered, as it was offered to Gawain twice here, you have two options. And the status quo is not one of them, right? You can respond to the grace of conversion, in which case you change, in which case you start that upward, that painful upward pathway, in which case you're no longer the same, or you can reject it, in which case you are now resisting grace. The great English poet Francis Thompson has a poem called The Hound of Heaven, which you should all read. Uh, the Hound of Heaven, in which Christ says to a soul who's resisting him, All things betray thee who betrayest me. And that's what you see with Gawain. If you don't like Francis Thompson, take the words of our Lord in Matthew 25. In the parable of the talents, he ends up by saying, From the one who doesn't have, the one who doesn't have grace, from the one who doesn't work for Christ, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. So Gawain chooses his companions over grace. As a result, he loses not just the grace, but he loses the companions too. And he starts slaughtering them mindlessly. That's Sir Gawain. And that's 
fairly relentlessly depressing. So we're going to go on now to Sir Lancelot, where we actually have some upside. Now, last time we talked about Sir Lancelot as two things. He is the greatest knight in the world, or at least he was until Sir, Gawain, or Sir Galahad came along. He's also the shining example of courtly love. Now, if you weren't here last time, 30 seconds on what courtly love is. It's this. Every gentleman has to have a lover who should probably not be his wife, whom he obeys in everything. Right? That's, that's the general line of courtly love. And every gentleman should be doing great things to win his lover's favor, to win her smile. Right? And this is what Sir, Gaw- or Sir Gawain, Sir Lancelot does. He loves Guinevere, and he goes off on all his great adventures, fights great battles in order to win her favor. And this makes him the greatest knight in the world, so, so we think. And this is all perfectly in line with what the manuals of courtly love tell us, because there actually were manuals telling you how to be a courtly lover. A man named Andreas Capellanus, Andrew the chaplain, tells his audience that courtly love will make a rough man to be distinguished for his handsomeness. It can endow a man even of the humblest birth with nobility of character. It blesses the proud with humility. And the man in love becomes accustomed to performing many services gracefully for everyone. Oh, what a wonderful thing is love, which makes a man shine with so many virtues and teaches everyone, no matter who he is, so many good traits of character. And that is who Lancelot is, right? He does all the great things for love. He's the textbook shining example of courtly love. Now, in the next 20, 30 pages, we're going to watch that ideal of courtly love be blasted to a handful of quivering, tattered shreds. All right? Lancelot goes forward. He, too, is pursuing the grail. He, too, is not meeting with particularly many adventures. When Sir Galahad crosses his path... And like everyone else, Lancelot wants to be with Galahad because he knows Galahad is the perfect knight. So he chases after him. But he pushes too far. He goes into the night, into the woods. He gets lost. He eventually winds up at an old, run-down chapel. But there's something mysterious about this old, run-down chapel. It's set up inside through an iron grate. You can see inside to the chapel. And it's set up with the most rich and luxurious mass trappings Lancelot's ever seen. So he thinks this will be a good place to stop and stay. As he's resting there, a wounded knight dragged on a litter behind a horse comes up to the chapel. And he begs God that God would send the Holy Grail to come and heal him of his wounds so he, like everyone else, can pursue the quest to find out the mysteries of the Grail. And sure enough, the grail passes through the iron grate, comes out and heals the knight. The knight jumps up, he's whole, his servant, his squire is very happy. The grail passes back in. And all the while, Lancelot is paralyzed. He sees the whole thing with his waking eyes, but he can't move. He can't respond to the holy grail because he's dead in sin. You're dead in sin. You can't approach the grace of God, right? Now, when this happens, the squire, the servant of the recently healed knight, looks and says, Hey, Lord, you need a horse and you need a sword. This guy seems to have a horse and a sword, and because he's clearly not putting them to any good use, because if he knew what he was doing, he would have responded to the Holy Grail, we can just take him. So they take his horse, take his sword, and go riding off into the woods. Lancelot then wakes up out of his paralysis. He's in a pretty bad state. He snoops around a little bit. He hears a voice from the air saying, Lancelot, get out of here. The stench of your presence befouls this holy place. 
And now he goes off crying into the woods. Now, you might think that this is rock bottom for our good Sir Lancelot. Um, after all, no horse, no sword. He's a miserable sinner. He doesn't know where he is. But we've just started. <laughs> we've just started the downward plunge. The first thing that Lancelot does to get himself right is he goes to a hermit to give his confession. This is going to be number three on your handout. He confesses that he sinned unto death with the lady of his lord, with Queen Guinevere. And note the last part of this. She gave me the abundance of gold and silver and such rich gifts as I have distributed from time to time among poor knights. It is she who exalted me and set me in the luxury I now enjoy. For her love alone I accomplished the exploits with which the whole world rings. She it is who raised me from poverty to riches and from hardships to the sum of earthly bliss. This is that classic picture of, court, picture of courtly love, right? My lady has made me everything I am. I've become glorious, refined, the summit of earthly bliss through her. But, here's the thing. But I know full well that this bond is the sin that earned me our Lord's dire wrath. And I want you to stop and appreciate what a confession that is. He's confessed, yes, courtly love's a great thing. It made me into the envy of the world. But, it's a sin. He's just confessed the core of his being to be a sin. That's, I suggest, a pretty shocking confession. And it's only the beginning. Because at this point, he's confessed courtly love to be a sin, but you can still tell a little devotion to that courtly love, that still a little bit devotion to that sensual love. It's all that tragic love nonsense that sells young, young adult novels, right? It's the star-crossed lovers. Oh, I love her, but it's a sin, whatever. Okay, it's nonsense. Um, and we're going to see that it's nonsense, because as Lancelot's riding out into the woods, he meets a squire, the same squire who stole his horse and sword five pages ago. And the squire just lights into him, calls him worthless, calls him wretched. To appreciate what this is like, imagine a buck private just tearing into a five-star general. That's, a, that's basically what we have here. But Lancelot, in his humility, sits there and takes it. All right? But then, ooh, but then, we get a turn. You, number four, you have been properly bewitched by her who loves you little and esteems you less. You've done all this stuff for the love of Guinevere. Guinevere doesn't even care about you at all. Now, that seems a little harsh, right? Because if you look at the beginning of the story, it seems like Lancelot and Guinevere, okay, they've got an adulterous love affair, but they seem to like each other well enough, right? She loves you little and esteems you less. But Lancelot and Guinevere are the examples of courtly love, right? They're the shining examples of the courtly lovers. So we've got two truths. A, Lancelot and Guinevere are the epitome of courtly love. B, Guinevere doesn't actually love Lancelot with a true, real love. The conclusion from these two things is that courtly love itself is a weak and shabby and pathetic thing. It's not dramatic. It's not romantic. It's... Well, it's kind of embarrassing, actually, right? To throw everything away for, for that. So, we've seen the knife go in. We've seen the knife twist for poor Lancelot. The final blow, the coup de grace, comes when he meets another hermit. This hermit... In case you haven't noticed, the woods of England, they're just hermits running around everywhere. <laughs> All right. So, he meets another hermit. And this hermit says, Lancelot, God gave you... 
everything. He gave you all the virtues a man could need. Virginity, humility, patience, justice, and above all charity. And you threw it all away on that adulterous love affair with Guinevere. And then note this, because this is critical. You drove out all the virtues and welcomed in their opposites. However, our Lord had furnished you so lavishly that out of such profusion there needs must be some leavings. With the residue God left you, you performed the wondrous feats in far-flung lands, which won you such renown the whole world over. Think then what more you might have been had, might have done had you kept intact in you all the virtues which our Lord had planted there. You notice what just happened there. All right? He, the hermit says, God gave you everything, you threw it away, but God made you so great for, that even from the rubble of your life, you were able to accomplish all these great things. Compare that to what Lancelot said in his confession. In his confession, Lancelot said, Yeah, I was nothing. My love for Guinevere made me great. The hermit says, Ah, no, 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 no. Your love for Guinevere made you incomparably less than what you might have been otherwise. Your love for Guinevere made you pathetic, right? So, we haven't just killed courtly love. We've driven a stake through its heart. We've burned it, scattered the ashes. We are now done with courtly love. We are done with everything Lancelot built his identity on. Now that his old identity is in rubble, though, he can start to be rebuilt after the image of Christ. The sensual love is dead. He can move on to something else. The hermit gives him a penance regimen, which is basically the Cistercian rule for novices. You wear a hair shirt, you go to Mass every day, you go to confession every week, you fast. So Lancelot gets this, he rides off into the woods, and he begins his new life. And as he begins his new life, he finds something very, very striking. On page 155, he's lying asleep, he's, he's lying down in his hair shirt and everything, but, 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 despite all this, he had been driven to the point where he found greater pleasure and beauty in the chafing garment and in the unyielding earth than in anything he experienced before that. His new life in grace has become sweeter to him than all the old delights of sin. This is exactly what St. Bernard says carnal love is supposed to do. He says, it's sweet. It's sweet to reflect on these things. And just like one nail drives out another, you've got a nail stuck, drive in another nail to pop it out. So the sweetness of carnal love drives out the sweetness of sin. So, Lancelot has now advanced from sensual to carnal. Clear? All right. We can be done with Lancelot for a second. Um, he's got a long and arduous journey, ups and downs. You don't become the best knight in the spiritual realm in a day. But he eventually figures it out and can, be, can accompany his son on his adventures. Uh, for the sake of time, we should probably leave that aside and go on to our best example of carnal love, which is Sir Percival. All right? Now, Sir Percival. Two things... Everyone who reads this for the first time in the Middle Ages would have known about Sir Percival. One, he's very, very young. Two, he's very naive. All right? He's naive for a very specific reason. His brothers and his father had been knights. They were killed in battle. And Mama Percival decides that there's no way that her little baby is going to suffer the same fate. So what does she do? 
She decides on what can only be called a particularly aggressive course in homeschooling. She takes Percival deep into the woods, determined that he will never know what a knight is, because if he doesn't know what a knight is, he can't become a knight, and he can't be killed as a knight. It's a flawless plan. Except for one thing. Boys will be boys, right? Uh, So Percival's off hunting one day. He sees some knights of Arthur's court riding by on an adventure. He says, I don't know what they are. But I want to be that. So he runs off to be a knight. Uh, And all of Mama Percival's efforts come to naught. But because of his peculiar upbringing, he's not like the other knights of Arthur's court, right? He He hasn't been raised in that environment. So two results from this. One is, he doesn't know how to act in polite society. You know, he doesn't know how to talk to a girl. He doesn't know how to sit at a nice dinner. And you get a lot of jokes at poor bumbling Percival's Expense, right? Ha ha, Percival doesn't know anything. But just as he's ignorant of society's refinements, he's innocent of society's corruptions, right? Because society does two things it refines, you get nice manners, and it corrupts because it disguises vice as virtue. Percival doesn't know any of that. He doesn't, he's never experienced the whole courtly love nonsense or anything along those lines. So that's what Percival is. And for the most part, his adventures follow along with the sort of simplistic, holy innocence that he has. At one point, he finds himself riding on a big black demonic horse. He gets scared, and he crosses himself, and the horse vanishes in a puff of smoke. He shouldn't have gotten on the horse to begin with, but, you know, we're clear now. And those are the general tenor of Percival's adventures. But one is really critically important. He's... Once the horse vanishes, he's stranded. The horse has borne him far off into the wilderness. He's stuck between a river on one side and some really steep cliffs on another, so he just sits and waits. And down the river comes a ship with white sails and a man clothed all in white. This is probably a good sign. In fact, this is Christ himself come to visit Percival, and they have a nice conversation. And in this conversation, we see Percival's simple carnal affection. As he's talking with Christ, we're told on page 120, Percival took such delight in his company that had their converse been prolonged forever, he would have had no wish for meat and drink. So sweet and refreshing were the words he heard. It's sweet. It's delightful. Percival has that strong affection for Christ, even though at this point he doesn't know that it's Christ he's talking to. But Christ isn't there just to shoot the breeze. He tells Percival that a great test is coming and his soul hangs in the balance. Be on your guard. And then he sails away because Christ is very busy in the story. (laughs) All right. The next day, Percival's waiting. And around about noon, another ship comes up. Black draperies everywhere. A whirlwind precedes it right at the hour of noon. The hour of noon is important for us today because it sends us a signal. This enemy approaching is none other than the great enemy of monastic life, the noonday demon. Do you, do you know the term the noonday demon? It's from Psalm 90 verse 6, where we're promised protection against the noonday demon. For the monks, that noonday demon, it's, it's that feeling you get after a heavy lunch. Um, it's it's the, the weariness. It's achadia, which is usually translated as sloth, but it's more than just being lazy. It's a dryness, right? It begins with dryness. You feel the sweetness of Christ, but then after a while, the affection sort of goes away. And when you stop getting the consolations, you're vulnerable. Why? Because 
Well, you question whether it's all worth it, right? It's all great when you go to Mass and everything feels great, everything feels wonderful, you feel the presence of Christ, right? But what happens when it goes away? You question whether or not any of this matters at all. So then you go into a despair, from despair into sloth, because, yeah, if it's not worth it, why bother, right? Why, why bother with all the hard work if it doesn't mean anything? And from laziness, you go into luxury, from luxury into lust. That's the danger. This is constant in monastic literature. The noonday demon here is going to tempt Percival in exactly that way. Percival goes on the ship, but instead of finding some grimacing demon, he finds... What else? The most beautiful woman he's ever seen before in his life. But this is the noonday demon, and she's going to tempt him just along those lines. She tells him, you're stuck. You need me if you're ever going to get out of here. Without me, you're doomed to die. You're tired. You should rest. She sets up a bed and a nice little tent so he can fall asleep. Oh, you're hungry. You should eat. She plies him with rich foods and really strong wine. And as he starts to get inflamed, well, he does as young people do when they get a little inflamed in the presence of members of the opposite sex. He starts to flirt. And not just to flirt, but he asks her to be his love. She asks him to be her knight. And they agree. It goes so far that they actually wind up in bed. Yeah, they wind up in bed. But then Percival notices that his sword's on the ground, and he doesn't want it to be on the ground far away. So he hops out of bed, out of bed with the devil, to pick up his sword. As he's preparing to get back in bed, he looks at his sword. He sees a red cross engraved on the pommel. And immediately snaps back to himself. Oh my gosh, what have I done? He crosses himself again, and suddenly, tent, bed, maiden, poof, they all vanish in a puff of smoke. And he sees them sailing away on the river, and she's cursing him from afar. In his remorse, he takes his sword, drives it through his thigh, uh, sits down and prays all the prayers that he knows, and waits for the next day to come. The next day, Christ comes back. Christ heals him of his wound, he's passed the test, and we're done. We're done? Right? We're done? That doesn't seem fair at all. Percival, I confess, is a big struggle for me. Because he's one of our three successful Grail Knights. He's one of our three heroes. And it looks for all the world here that he was saved by dumb luck. Right? What happens if they had hidden the sword? What happens if he doesn't look that way? What happens if he doesn't see the cross? He hops in bed with the devil? That doesn't end well. Right? So he's saved by luck. That doesn't seem fair. But of course, it's not just luck. It's divine providence, right? There's no such thing as luck. God has his plan and Percival's part of it. But if I'm being negative again, that just seems to defer the problem another few yards down the road because why does Percival get the special grace? Why does Percival get the divine mulligan? Okay, you get to do it all over, right? Why? I think the answer probably comes if we go back to what his character has been in the past. He's been the innocent one, right? He's been the young one. And grace, in literature and in real life, has a tendency to accommodate weakness, right? It makes up for their lack of experience by a little added bonus of grace. Percival's never experienced this temptation before, so God helps him out of it, right? That's probably the best answer. Um, the important thing to note is that even if that's the way grace works, as I suggest it is, Percival still has to respond, right? It's still up to him. He could hop back. He could ignore the cross. He could hop back into the bed. He could not respond at all. He could reject it. And, more importantly, even than that, he has to shape up now. 
Christ tells him exactly this when he comes back. Page 133. Be on your guard, for if you fall a second time, you will not find any to help you to your feet as promptly as today. Essentially, grow up. I've given you added help because you were inexperienced. You're now experienced. You're going to have to pay attention now. The good news is, Percival does pay attention. He was down here. As he's talking with Christ, all of a sudden, the light goes on, and he realizes who he's talking to. He sees the spiritual reality behind the merely physical appearances, and he's not going to fall into that same dumb mistake again. So, we've advanced now up to the rational love. All right? But if we're going to talk about rational love, we really ought to talk about Sir Bors because he's the epitome of it. So we're going to skip ahead to Sir Bors. We're short on time. We'll have to roll ahead as quickly as we can. Now, Sir Bors is the prototypical rational man. I gave you St. Bernard's description of the rational love at number six on your handout. Love is rational when the reason is so strong in faith that in all things concerning Christ, it strays not even in the slightest degree because of any false likeness of truth, nor by any heretical or diabolical deceit does it wander from the integrity of the sense of the church. In the same way, when speaking on its own, it exercises such caution as never to exceed the proper limits of discretion by superstition or frivolity or the vehemence of a too eager spirit. And this describes Bohr's to a T. It matches his story so well, in fact, that some scholars think that when our author wrote the quest for the Holy Grail and wrote about Sir Bors, he had that description in front of him. All right? Because Sir Bors is absolutely the rational man. Because he's the rational man, the temptations aren't going to be this low level. They're going to be intellectual temptations for him. All right? So we're going another step down the journey. Uh, as an example of the source of trials that Bors has... Do we have time for this? Yeah, we have time for this. He's first tested by a priest who holds up to him a consecrated host and asks him what he sees. And Bohr says, I know what I'm looking at is my Lord. Holy God, holy man, body and blood. He knows that he's seeing God, even though his earthly eyes can't make it out. That's his modus operandi, right? That's how he works. He's always looking deeper. And this is going to be very important for him because his trials are going to require him to do so. Perfect example. Look at number seven on your, uh, number eight on your handout. Boris falls asleep. He has a vision where two birds come to talk to him to ask for his help. One bird is shining white. The other one is black. Now, we've been through this time and time again, right? White, good, black, bad. We, we've established that. But look a little bit closer here at the handout. Bors asks the white bird who it was. Can you not see for yourself? I am so white and so very beautiful, and yet I am lovelier still than you imagine. Just above that, if you serve me, I would give you all the riches in the world, and you should be as fair and as white as I. Ooh, you, you, you chuckle. Yeah, this is disconcerting. These are the words of Satan to Christ in the temptation in the desert, right? If you serve me, I will give you all the riches of the world. Oh, well, that's, that's surprising. If you look at the blackbird then, you ought and must serve me tomorrow. Do not despise me for my blackness, but know that my black hues are better worth than the other's whiteness. This echoes Song of Songs, verse, chapter 1, verse 4, where the bride says to the bridegroom, I am black, but beautiful. All right? 
We learn later that the white bird signifies the heretic and the hypocrite, white on the outside, but like a swan, black underneath. The blackbird is clearly the church, right? Because, let's face it, the church has not always been perfect in history. We have our share of scandals, right? Just like the bride in the Song of Songs is burned by the sun. But it's still the church. It's still Christ's church, and it's still the way you go. And Bohr's task is going to be to sift through these, as St. Bernard would say, false likenesses of the truth to find the reality. Later, he meets the devil disguised as a monk, right? We've always trusted our monks. Now the devil comes dressed like a monk to tell Sir Bors that he ought to give up his commitment to chastity. Bors sees through that as well. He's seen through the diabolical deceit. But the best and clearest picture comes a little bit later when Bors, like Percival before him, is tempted to sin against chastity. It's much the same setup. You've got beautiful maidens wooing the knights. But the payoff is completely different because you have different kinds of men who are being tempted. Right? Percival, Percival was stupid, let's be honest. Bors, not stupid. He meets the maiden, and she professes an undying love for him, begs him to take her as his lover. How does Bors respond? When Bors heard this profession, we might as well call it a proposition, he was very embarrassed, being determined on no account to infringe his rule of chastity, he sat nonplussed and silent. Bors, being the rational man, can't be drawn away by anything so petty as this. At best, he's, he's almost bored by the temptation to lust. So, the devil takes it one step further. This demon maiden climbs to the top of her tower, takes her twelve handmaids with her, and says, if you don't love me, I'm going to jump. I'll do it. And the maidens say, if our lady jumps, we're jumping too. You're going to have all our blood on your hands. And Boris says, well, Boris gives the right answer. I'll leave you to think about that for a second. The right answer is, okay. <laughs> you want to jump? Go ahead and jump. Your first responsibility is to take care of your own soul, to do what you know is right, to, to see to your own salvation. You're not responsible for how other people respond to that. So the ladies jump, Boris crosses himself, and they, poof, vanish in the puff of smoke. We see this recurring theme, right? Okay. So that's Boris's rational love. But we've got one level higher to go. And we get this next step when he meets his brother Lionel. Lionel has been driven mad with rage and hatred against Bors. Because when Bors had a choice to either save Lionel, who was being led off to prison, or save a young maiden who was being led off by an attacker, he chose to save the innocent young maiden. Right choice. But Lionel was a little bit peeved. More than a little peeved. Bors greets his brother, and the brother immediately tries to kill him. Falls into a rage and tries to murder Bors. And Bors does everything he can to resist violence against his brother, because kinslaying is a pretty horrible sin. Bors gets beaten down, injured, wounded, and right at the final crisis, God separates them, God has, says Bors has proved himself, and now we can go on. So we've risen from the purely rational love to the strong spiritual love which holds on even in the face of death. And that's been the soul's ascent. Gawain to Bors. Once we're up to the spiritual level, there's not a whole lot left for us to do, right? Basically, all that's left now is the grail. We have, yeah, we've got a time for this. We have two grail experiences at the very end of the story. One successful, one unsuccessful. Lancelot is unsuccessful, partially successful. It's Galahad, Percival, and Bors who actually get the real thing. We'll start off with Lancelot.
After his long journeys, he comes to the castle Korbenik, where the grail is being held. He comes in, he sees a bright light streaming out of a chapel, comes to the threshold of the chapel and is told by a voice from heaven to stop, go no farther. He looks into the chapel. It's right at the moment of consecration and the priest is holding up the host when all of a sudden he seems to waver under a great weight because Lancelot sees above the priest two men, two older men putting a young man into the priest's hands. Now, this is obvious. This is easy to see what it is. It's a mystical vision of transubstantiation, right? It's clear as day. This is Christ coming to earth in the consecration. All right. But Lancelot, he's still down here. He's still down at the carnal level. He hasn't yet progressed to see things with his spirit or see things with his soul. So what does he do? Well, it's a direct analog to the story of Uzzah and the Ark with David, right? David sends for the ark to be brought to Jerusalem. Uzzah, the cart driver, is riding along with it. The cart hits a bump. The ark starts to totter. He puts out his hand, and God strikes him down. Yeah? Poof. All right. Yeah. All right. Now, the same thing doesn't happen to Lancelot. He rushes forward because he sees the priest start to, to buckle. He's struck down, but into a trance, not to death. He lies in a trance for 24 days, one day for each year he spent in sin with Queen Guinevere. This is both a purgation and a punishment and a reward because he can't get any closer to the grail, but he still is sort of frozen in a suspended animation right at that moment when he rushed in. So he gets part of the mystery. When he wakes up, he knows his part in the quest is over, he goes home. Now for our real heroes. They too come to the castle, they too, but they get to participate in the full mystery. They are joined by nine other knights from all around the world, thereby making the very important number 12, right? The all-important number 12. Now at consecration, Christ comes out of the chalice, bleeding in his hand and, hands and feet, and communicates each one of the knights, um, thereby absolutely recreating the Last Supper, where St. Augustine says, Christ held himself and carried himself in his hands and gave himself to his disciples. And just like Christ gives himself to the disciples and then sends out the apostles, Christ sends out our 12 great knights, okay, They're to go out and proclaim the gospel in the world. For Galahad, Percival, and Bors, this means they're to go to the Holy Land to, to take the Grail home. And this is sort of the final moment of the quest, all right? Galahad takes the Grail home. He suffers some more privation, some more purification, a year in prison, and even worse, he spends a year as king, which he likes even less than being in prison. But then he gets to see the face of God and die. He goes to his reward. Percival, when Galahad dies, becomes a monk and dies a year later. Bors, seeing his two companions dead, goes home to Camelot to tell the story and rejoins life. The end. Now, not quite the end, because we need to, we need to spend uh, three minutes, four minutes, on what we're supposed to get, on what we're supposed to get out of this story in the end. I said the, at the beginning of last talk, I'll say, I said at the beginning of this talk, I will say again, we're using the nightly romance to move our souls to the love of God, right? And we've seen that in a couple of ways. We've seen that by reading Galahad's adventures where Galahad represents Christ, we can stir up our affection and appreciation of what Christ has done. Yeah, we saw that last time. This time, we get a roadmap for salvation. 
which is a pretty nice thing to have. We see how the soul can progress higher and higher to a more and more pure and strong love of God. That's great too. But there's one question about the final payoff, and it's this. Galahad, who's our exemplar throughout, is a mystic. He's a contemplative, right? He gets these great mystic and contemplative visions. He sees God face to face. And I'll be honest, that's, that's a monastic calling, right? That's what monks yearn for in, in the contemplative monasteries. What do we get out of that, right? Because I'll be honest, when I'm up changing a diaper or grading a paper or, you know, in some boring committee meeting, I don't have a whole lot of time to contemplate God face to face, right? So what do you and I, maybe you guys are all living saints, I don't know, but what do I? Well, let's just focus on me. What do I get out of this as a layman? Because after all, this was written not for the monks, but for people like you and me. Well, I suggest that the answer comes as the answer usually comes with fours in this story, right? Galahad sees the face of God and dies. Percival becomes a monk, contemplates God, and dies. But Bors is the one who's gone through this journey, which is a journey we can all take, rising higher and higher into a more and more rational, informed love of God, and then strengthening that love of God so that it will stand firm no matter what comes. Bors, having gone through that, goes home to Camelot. Eventually he'll die. Eventually he will get the beatific vision. But right now, he has to go back to civilization. He has to go back to committee meetings and changing diapers and, you know, and all the refinements and all the corruptions of Camelot. And he's got to share the good news, right? And that's really the mission. You go back, you progress along the road, you go back and share the good news, spread what you've seen, spread what you've heard in Camelot or in Annandale. And that's really the final message of the quest for the Holy Grail. Thank you very much, and have a good night. Obviously, all the knights are uh, figures of Arthurian legend. Mm-hmm. Does King Arthur have, this is maybe a separate subject, but does King Arthur and Guinevere have any role in this, or later, <laughs> if you can lead us on to something about that? Okay, so last time I, I brought up the fact that the quest for the Holy Grail is actually part of a much larger cycle of stories. If we had the whole thing, we'd have about half a bookshelf. Now, King Arthur and Guinevere don't factor much in this. This is a French story. The French don't give King Arthur much to do, typically. They like to talk about their French knights. You see names like Galahad, Lancelot. You recognize the French language. These are the guys that the French like to talk about. Um, so Arthur, he's pretty much in the background. Guinevere plays a much more important role, both in this story and in later stories, because she is the great love of Sir Lancelot, and she's the one who ultimately, the love for her is what prevents Lancelot from attaining the grail fully. She plays a much heavier role, but Arthur, Chesterton has a great line, that in the French stories, the king shrank to a shadow watching behind a screen, and that's basically what Arthur is. He's the guy at home, all the stories circle around him, but he just watches. He doesn't do a whole lot. Very good question. So who wrote this? We don't know. Uh, <laughs> no, we, we don't know. The best guess we have Clearly a learned man. 
probably someone living out in the world, not living in a monastery, because people living in a monastery aren't reading about Arthur, Lancelot, and Guinevere. That's not what they do. Given the concerns of the, of the story, it wouldn't surprise me if it was one of two things. Either someone who was a Cistercian monk and was sent out into the world, because that's something that happened quite frequently. If a Cistercian monk becomes an abbot, he takes monks with him. So he's out in the world interacting with lay people. That's one possible option. Or it's someone who was working out his vocation, had been at the schools, knew the Cistercian, the Cistercian story, and, but never quite signed up. It was sort of working out his own vocation. Those are the two best options, but we don't know. Um, you mentioned that this is not really for the clerics, it's for the rest of us. Indeed. Yet the date here is 1225, which is a good two-plus centuries before the printing press. Right. So I'm wondering, through what means was this distributed, and, through, and to whom? Right. So, right. We don't have a printing press, much less cheap mass market editions that you can buy for probably one cent plus shipping on Amazon.com. Um, we don't have that right then. So what reading, reading of this would have probably consisted of people have all of it or part of it in a manuscript, which takes an enormous amount of time, energy, and money to produce. But it would be at a manor house. It would be in some noble household where you have a few people who know how to read. And after dinner, you sit down and you read part of the quest for the Holy Grail. That's probably how most people would have encountered it. There are many, many man manuscripts of the thing. So it circulated pretty widely, but probably to audiences like that. This is not A monastery is not going to want to own this, probably. Um, and only... Yeah, only a handful of lay people would have had the money, but those who did wanted it. All right. I've always heard the Sir Parsifal story in connection with a legend that I don't know much about, namely right. the Fisher King. Right. Can you comment on that at all? All right. So the Fisher King. This is part of the Grail story that I had to leave out. The Fisher King starts up. He's King Pelas. He's begins his literary life in Chrétien de Troyes, um, Percival. Parsifal is Percival. You can probably parse that out, right? So the Fisher King is the grandfather, in some accounts great-grandfather, of Galahad. And he, or his father, depending on the story, is wounded. He's maimed. And only by access to the Holy Grail or the lance, Long, Longinus' lance, which, which tends to go with the Grail, can he be healed. When he's healed, the land, which had been waste, is returned to its original fruitfulness. That's a constant that runs through five or six different Grail stories. Slight changes every time, but that's who the Fisher King is. That's where he fits in. Is there something more you'd like to ask? Her? Why Fisher? Why Fisher King? Fisher King, because in the original story, Percival encounters him just as a fisherman out in his boat among the reeds searching for fish. It's where he can find a little bit of relief from his continual, continual injuries. Um, injuries and healing play a really big role in this story. If I had another 50 minutes, we would get all the backstory of the Holy Grail and this Old Testament of chivalry, but we don't quite have that just yet. 
Doctor, would you say that, uh, that this text is written for people who were biblically literate and therefore could understand the, the imagery being given, or for those that were not biblically literate and this was a, a, a substitute or alternative? I'd be hesitant to say it's a substitute or an alternative because if it's just a substitute, you're going to miss half the fun in the story, right? If you don't know, if, you don't, if your ears don't prick up when the white bird says, I will give you all the riches in the world if you follow me, you've got some problems. Now, I can tell you this. At this around the same time this was written, you'd have lay people who would encounter scriptural learning through one of three big means, right? Obviously, you have the Mass, and that's, that's first and foremost, source and summit and all those things. You also would have nobles, the sort of people who would have a book like this handy. They would also often have a little book of hours. So they'd have their little prayers throughout the day. They would get things through that. Also, there are old French Bible story books, which circulate, which would have familiarized a lot of people with stories. Finally, sorry, this is the fourth thing I lied. Noble houses often have a cleric in them, and the cleric would be someone who, as he's reading along, can stop and say, now you know what this means, don't you? Right? And then everyone else sort of fills in and follows along. So they'd have access to it, and the access is important, otherwise the work loses half its richness. Um. Okay, so why the Cistercian community? Why not Benedictines or Carmelites? What's the connection with Cistercians in particular? What, what's the connection with the Cistercians? All right, two ways to answer that question. The first way, why do I say it's a Cistercian work? Because if you look closely, you hear the sermons of St. Bernard, the works of William of Santerie, echoing in the background very clearly. Also, if you just look at the surface, anytime you have someone telling you the answer, it's a white monk. And the white monks are the Cistercians, as opposed to the black monks who are the Benedictines. The only monk who might not be a white monk in this entire story, okay, that's not quite true, but one of the few monks who might not be a white monk in the story is the devil when he's impersonating a monk. We're not told that he's a white monk. So clearly there's a little bit of a Cistercian bias. That's the first thing. Why is there a Cistercian bias? It's because in this time period, it's the Cistercians who are by far the dynamic one of the monastic orders, at least in France, right? The Benedictines, uh, the Benedictines have fallen a little bit away. You had the Cluniac reforms, but those grew wealthy and then they grew corrupt. The Cistercians breathe the fresh life back into monastic life in France. So if you're looking for a monastic guide, if you're looking for a real spiritual leader, at, 12, 15, 12, 25, you're going to be looking for the Cistercians unless you're looking for a Dominican, but that's another story. If, I, I don't want to throw you a, a curveball, but is there any chance you could say something about Dan Brown and the Grail and Mary Magdalene? <laughs> Dan Brown is a pernicious fraud and a literary hack who couldn't write his way out of a wet paper bag. Now, having said that, having said that, his arguments surrounding the quest for the Holy Grail are completely and utterly false. They don't work historically. They don't work in terms of art history. They don't work in terms of linguistics. For instance, one of the claims that you hear Dan Brown and his company say you have the word, the old French word, sangral. And it's not actually sant 
Grau, it's Sang Real. It's not the Holy Grail, it's the royal blood, it's the secret bloodline of Mary Magdalene, and blah, 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 blah. But, Grail is an old French word, G-R-A-A-L, which comes from uh, the Latin word gridalis. There's no way in the world that this could be a coded message for the bloodline of Mary Magdalene. It's just absurd. To take another small absurdity, a lot of what someone like Dan Brown is going to want to say is about... They go into the psychosexual symbolism of the chalice... And, oh, it's a chalice. It's feminine. But, again, the grail isn't a chalice. It's a plate. It's a platter. It's not the cup of the Last Supper. It's the, the platter from which Christ ate the Paschal Lamb. We, we saw that last time, right? It's all built. It's a giant, but it has clay feet, right? Uh, finally, here's the, this is truly the last thing I'll say. I was at a graduate student conference once. And this very earnest woman stood up and told us how the quest for the Holy Grail was really about Mary Magdalene and the hidden bloodline of Christ and blah, 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 blah. When questions and answers came, everyone stood in shocked, dumbfounded silence until one woman, a very sweet nun, raised her hand because she believed that every presentation deserves a question and asked, what sources did you use for this presentation? And she said, oh, I looked at the book Holy Blood, Holy Grail, which is what Dan Brown ripped off half of his information from. And then I made up the rest on my own. And we all sat in silence because that's answer enough. Nobody in the scholarly world takes Dan Brown remotely seriously. Secular, Christian, anything in between. Dan Brown, he says everything's based on real research. That is one of the worst lies in the history of publication. It's a falsehood wrapped in an absurdity, and that is Dan Brown. <laughs> Thank you very much, Doctor. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540 540- 635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.